0: You're listening You're listening You're listening You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more
1: If you want to learn about the music industry And you don't know where to go Tune into to WP88.7 Brave New Radio We got managers, producers, record labels concert promoters galore You never know Wednesday at 8 p.m.
0: Here we are. one or more. Break New Radio, 88.7 on the FM dial, but it's also on the podcast dial because you're listening on SoundCloud or somewhere like that. I'm your professor, David Kirk-Philip, along with Dr. Esteban. Marconi. It is a pleasure to have you back, Dr. Esteban. In the sta- well, assignment
2: was over, yes. I tried to stretch it another week or so, but I uh, didn't make it.
0: Didn't make it. No. Made it made it back to the garden state, which is great to have you here. God's country, yes. <laughs> it certainly is. That's what they always say. Okay. A guest today, tonight, Laura Puffpath, who is the co-founder CEO of feed.fm and the founding member of Chief. We're going to talk with her shortly, but before we get to that, we should remind you. Visit our website, musicbiz101wp.com. You can sign up for a newsletter and eventually you'll get a newsletter or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at musicbiz101wp. Should we be giving some thanks? Yeah. Here we go. We want to give thanks to the folks at Bandai Burnoink and White Hat Management, with artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent, Kiss, Zach Brown. There's only one place for you to go for your band or solo artists. Business Management, go to VB. Mm. <laughs> hyphen cpa.com when you are ready and we want to give thanks to christine Oy. they a wealth manager at the forefront group f-o-u-r christine has helped many 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 professionals and amateurs around the world manage their investments plan for their retirement when somebody like you is thinking of building bridge to your financial future you should think of the four f-o-u-r forefront group and go to christine dot boy they at Forefront.com. Leave
2: the last oil off for savings.
0: Yes. And we should mention Managing Your Band, 7th edition. Yeah,
2: we're back to work again, aren't we? Yeah, we got
0: some work to do
2: here and there. But it's coming
0: and you're gonna love it.
2: It's real. It's It's real. It's the first time I've done it in 6th editions, where I didn't know exactly what was going on, but this is great. It's like giving a record. You're out of the studio and you hand it over to marketing and they take care of it, and that's exactly what's happening now.
0: It's very nice, we're looking forward to that. And now Laura, our guest, is here. So
2: I would be remiss to not ask you Puff Puff. That's right,
3: that's right, it's phonetic, but it's a weird one.
2: And where's its hometown?
3: That is German, and believe it or not, I chose that name, (laughs) that's my husband's name. But it's a good, it's a good conversation starter. People look at it and kind of, hmm.
2: Right. Yeah. I haven't never, it, so it's German. It's German, yeah. Your husband's name?
3: It, yeah, apparently there are a lot of puff paths in Chicago area, but there are none in the Bay Area, so. Oh,
2: great. So you're in the Bay Area.
3: We are, yep. Our I'm in the East Bay. Our office was formerly in San Francisco. We are now
2: first throughout the Bay Area. Okay. So I think that's Dave. This might be the first time we've spoken to a DJ. I don't know.
0: I don't know. But-
2: Run DMC, but Run isn't a DJ. I mean, Daryl's not a DJ. So okay. So you went to University of New Mexico? I did. I did. Albuquerque. And then what happened after that?
3: And then I packed up my car with my turntables and my computer and I drove to San Francisco. <laughs> and I said, all of the music that I'm buying right now and all of the scene and all, like everything I wanna be a part of is in San Francisco. So I'm going for it. And I moved out with three other girls and basically just sort of dove in head first to, both the dj scene and culture but then also started my career in advertising at the same time. Mm-hmm. I, at one point I decided I was going to be a professional dj but that honestly lasted 6 months and I said this is not for me. I like sleep too much and I like to have health benefits and <laughs> <laughs> it's not for me. So I have since then always kept music as my passion and you know my my sort of part-time gig, and then with Feed have had the opportunity to bring the professional skills with the personal passion together, which I feel is generally pretty unique and an mm-hmm.
2: opportunity. Okay, so how, that was um, after DJ, and that was the first thing you sort of did, or did you do something between before Feed?
3: Yeah, no, I, so I was doing startup marketing and operations for a number of years. So, you know, have done everything from a beauty marketplace that's like open table for hair and makeup Mm -hmm. to a company called Liquid Space, which is basically a booking tool for co-working back when co-working was like a radical concept for people and now it's doing in the future so yeah I've done like operations and marketing for startups for a number of years and then I met my co-founders in 2015 and we had shared a passion for music and trying to figure out different ways to help with the distribution problem from a business perspective and just we were just simpatico as people and I think that from my perspective, is the most important thing if you're going to start a company from scratch, is you got to find the right partners. You know. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you you saw a need. I mean that maybe that's for the corporate world something like Musac was doing years ago, but not doing it very well. Of course, we know that. But you saw uh, how did the three of you see this need or what you decided was going to be feed.
3: Yeah so it was it started with a sort of friend and colleague who was working at Anheuser-Busch at the time. Mm-hmm. And we were already prototyping and and building some different iterations of the product and he came to us and said, "Look, we're spending so much money every year sponsoring festivals across the country. they were at the time it was like 80 million dollars in the US they were spending every summer on sponsoring festivals and that was when Com- the festivals were starting to have apps so you would have your your map and you could do lineup and they wanted to put music from the artists at the festival into the app and said even a company like anheuser-busch with resources and connections couldn't figure out how to do it in a timely manner mm-hmm. and There's just this big gap in the marketplace and definitely still exists that as a business if you're looking to share music digitally so unlike Muzak in a physical location, if you want to put music into your app or share it with your customers on your website, it is both uh, cost prohibitive and often extremely time consuming. Mm-hmm. So, so We started experimenting and figuring out, okay, what's the first need? A, you've got to have a pre-cleared catalog so that all the music needs to be fully licensed. B, you've got to figure out the technology. So how are we, how are they going to actually get the music into their app? So we have an API and a set of SDKs that allows our customers to basically integrate into their app, but we're still streaming all the music from our servers so that we can track it and pay it out to the rights holders. And then the third piece is the tracking and the analytics. Like, why does anybody care? Because you want a better experience for your end user in the app, first and foremost. And also for your bottom line, like how, how does music impact your business? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Started iterating and we've worked with retail apps, digital health, the golden state warriors, a couple different sports teams. And now, as you may have noticed, if you looked at our website, we work with a lot of fitness applications right now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely exploded with at home fitness in the last, Well, 13 months or so for obvious reasons. And, you know, the, the, again, going back to the whole time to market thing, we've got companies coming to us saying, I've been trying to get my deals done with the labels since 2017. And I just haven't been able to get this done. Can you guys help? And that's Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: So are you responsible for the, is feed responsible for the, uh, licensing?
3: We are. Yep. Yep. So we do all of the licensing, all of the curation, and then all the payouts as well.
2: Uh Uh-huh. Great.
3: Yep. And, you know, there's a big education gap. We find also, you know, companies will come to us and say, hey, I got my deal done with the label. I'm ready to go. And we say, what about publishing? Not sure. What do you mean? (laughs) Right. a lot of our my head of sales we joke that he's like head of education because he just spends a lot of time talking to companies about what they need to do
2: yeah, yeah. whether
3: or not the right solution we try
2: to help people do the right thing ultimately right. so you've broadened beyond the health market yes the company has broadened out yeah
3: a- we work with a lot of different companies. There's some fun stuff happening right now, for instance, with with VR games, with AR and VR, lots of opportunity in gaming. Yep. People use popular music. Um, I mentioned retail. Again, this is all digital, primarily. And then lots and lots of fitness happening right now at home. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Okay. So you have a number of other companies as well that you had started why did you see a need for that
3: well so so feed media group is kind of the umbrella we've got two separate platforms one is feed fm which is primarily non-interactive music so not to get too in the weeds on the licensing but there is a shuffle component which allows us to operate under the statutory licenses so that so that we're operating under the blanket licenses for feed fm Mm -hmm. which of companies they don't necessarily need on-demand like non-interactive works for a lot of folks it's less expensive it's very quick to get to market and then recently we launched adapter.com which is um it's a self-service platform offering interactive music specifically for developers and startups so in order it's basically it's a click-through license and we initially have partnered with warner and a number of other um, labels and publishers to bring this to market, but why it's different or unique is, you know, the, um, letting go of control in some ways of the content for the right is, is mm-hmm. that's, that's their IP. I mean, that's, that's how they, their job is to make money for the artists. Right. And so for them to let go and say, okay, I'm going to grant you a sub license. There will be apps and developers who can come in and just instantly use my contact, my content in order to get folks comfortable with that. It has to be in a, like a pretty specific box in terms of the size of the company. So it's for their specific guardrails, but you have to have raised less than $7 million, for example, or be making less than 4.5 million in revenue. Mm-hmm. Hundred million unique users. So the the platform's totally self-service. You can come in, select major label, hit music, get it into your app, publish it, and the with again the exception that it really is just meant for companies who are just starting out. So there's starting to be, I think, more of a concept of an ecosystem. If I'm a developer, startup, I want to create the next TikTok. I need a way to get to market quickly with real music. But then once I get big enough and interesting enough, I'm going to have to go do my direct deals with the labels and the publishers. Mm -hmm. And then we're starting to try to um, map out for early stage companies. Because again, if it's taking you three years to get deals done for your business to use music, you'll be dead in the water. Like nobody has enough capital. Maybe a few companies have enough capital, but most folks are, bootstrapping, maybe they're seed funded, they've got a little bit of money in the bank and a really great idea. And they just need a way to validate it with some real music. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. And they is a, a subscription service? Is that what you is that the model? That's the model. What you?
3: Yep, yep. That's the model. We're trying to keep it as simple as possible. You know, so I, people are familiar with the SaaS model. Okay, it's a subscription, I get x number of streams. I can put it into a couple of different apps. And then once the idea is, again, once I sort of graduate on to getting some real market traction, I'll still have to go do those deals with the labels. But I'll be at that point mm-hmm. making enough money to where I can either get funding or am making some revenue for my customers to be able to afford it. Because that was the whole, that's the whole premise. And that's what we keep hearing from the market is the link between rights holders and early stage startups was broken. Like there's just... Typically you would need to know who to go talk to, probably hire a pretty expensive consultant slash lawyer, and then spend the time, pay the upfront advances, et cetera. And that's just not feasible for a student, a developer,
2: an early stage startup. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So who does your playlists?
3: My team, my, I have a team of uh, curators with, Diverse backgrounds, most of them are classically trained or ethnomusicologists' degrees, but they have since gone through lots of interesting things. And, you know, their job is interesting because we're curating for businesses, obviously, but ultimately for the end user. So they're, you know, that's where they start is, okay, who's the person that's hearing this music in this fitness app? What are they doing? but then you have to add in some layers of the brand. What is is the brand comfortable with? And are they trying to be edgy? Are they trying to be urban? Or is it like Nautilus or Life Fitness who's in a gym for every age of person? And it's very clean, very, you know, the sort of Box around themes and language is pretty tight on those kind of things. So, so they first start with the end user, and then think about the business and what it, what do they represent. And then you've also got this other layer that you're curating for a person who's like the the business stakeholder as well. And it's extremely challenging to remove your personal taste. Mm, yeah. Conversation around music. So. What's helpful for them is that we have a lot of data. We have data back from what people are liking or disliking or skipping. And so sometimes we get feedback from one of our customers that I'm tired of that song, I don't like it. Cool. But your users actually really love it and we can show you the data to prove it. So it's a
2: set of variables they're working with. And do you do um, new music? I mean, that's not a hit yet.
3: We do. Yeah. yeah. So we're, we have kind of a basic rule of thumb for the playlist where we're, we're trying to think about, and it, it varies depending on the context, but around 75% familiar with 25% discovery and mm-hmm. so pull in stuff. That's interesting. Maybe not hot yet, but especially like for fitness, it's, it isn't, it's a little bit different use case because generally you want something that, you know, to get you pumped and going yeah. And yeah and you know to keep moving at the same time you need some freshness in there so our starting point and then we look at the data is about 75 percent familiar with 25 percent new Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. our head of licensing has done an amazing job she's been working with the she actually comes from an indie distributor background and so she's got a great love for indies and has done some really great deals with um, some dance labels, some hip-hop, a bunch of different um, indie labels to, to make sure we bring that, represent that in the catalog as well.
0: Dave? That's what I was get, one of the questions I was going to ask in terms of overall catalog that you guys are licensing. Is it just Warner, Sony, um, Universal, or are you also either going to Merlin or are you talking to United Masters and Symphonic and DistroKid and going to all the independent distributors in the next level as well as all the majors.
3: Yeah, so we started with with Warner as a kind of our launch founding partner, and now we are working with DistroKid, talking to Merlin, ADA, E1, A Train. There's a number of so so the objective really is to have a a broader mix. Um, it's just a matter of time, frankly. So we just launched Adapter January 25th to really to rights holders, and our official launch to developers and startups is May 25th. So we had a couple months in there to just work out the keys, build out the catalog, and then now we're officially going out big in about a month or so. But yeah, objective definitely to have a mix of, of majors and indies.
0: And are you pitched regularly? Like, are, are have people, for example, at the labels, like, what you're doing, I used to work in the Universal Music Group in the division called Universal Music Enterprises. And I would look for companies like yours to pitch my catalog to, for example, because you would be an alternative revenue source for Universal other than right now it's, you know, Spotify, Apple, et cetera. So we'd be able to go to you and you're this whole um, awesome opportunity to provide music. And of course, the hardest thing is the licensing, you know, the pre-cleared. And again, so people understand we had Dave uh, Bogan in a couple of weeks ago. Who is with the Mechanical Licensing Collective? And we went through this whole thing about, you know, there are two licenses. That uh, there's the master use, and then there's the publishing side, the composition. And with you, we're talking about the master use. There's a public performance, and then where, you know, then there's the the squirrely. Uh, maybe maybe it would be a sync if you're like with a video content. Maybe it would be a mechanical if it was with something else. You know, so. Um, that's where I'm sure your salesperson is, is doing a lot of teaching, I guess. A lot of education, that's right.
3: Yeah, so I mean, we felt it was really important for the platform for everything to be pre-cleared. It doesn't work as self-service if you had been, okay, great, you have the master, now go get the publishing yourself. Like, that doesn't work. So, so that's been our objective from day one, is build out a really good quality, very diverse, fully pre- fully cleared, fully covered catalog for all these different use cases. Um, to your question around whether we're being pitched, we're still doing the pitching to be quite honest because we, this is, it's, a cha- it's a big change uh, for a lot of folks to be able to, as I mentioned, like a, a click-through license, like that kind of sub-license. We are seeing, even in the last four or five months, a lot more excitement and um, for, uh, comfort with the business model, if you will. I think that the time is right for it, especially as a lot of streaming revenue, it feels like it's sort of plateaued in some ways. And, and, and it is time to think about what's next. And you look at the app market and, you know, the revenue from apps is like 1,500% compounded growth rate. I mean, there's just, it's just exploding. And particularly with that, what's happening between gaming, at-home fitness, all these dance apps that are launching, like the time is now to start to foster innovation. So I think it's um, for us coming from a startup and a technology cycle expectation, it feels like it's been a little slow, to be honest, Mm -hmm. but our partners on the rights holder side are like, no, we're moving fast. This This is happening quickly. So it's to some extent, it's, you know, level setting, I guess, between our two worlds and making sure that At the end of the day, we're trying to create a win-win situation. We're trying to help these small businesses get to market quickly with really awesome music experiences, and we want to pay the rights holders and create this sense of transparency. They're going to get market data from these little apps that they never would have had time to deal with. I'm sure you know, like people come trying to license content and if you can't pay the advance or you're too small, it's not just not worth the time on the label side. So we want to, we're going to collect all this data from these apps feed it almost as a pipeline to the labels, ultimately, like, okay, these guys are getting big, it's probably about time for you to pay attention to them. So we feel like, again, like, there's a really huge opportunity to help both sides of the
0: platform. Mm-hmm. I guess with the pitching side, I was also thinking, like, for example, I manage three artists. Mm-hmm. So, of course, there'd be many managers all across the country in the labels who are would listen to this and go, oh, wow, I should reach out to her or go to the website. And check out the ethnomusicologist and find their contact and pitch them my song and say, hey, this song is perfect for X. This song is perfect for Y. This song. And I can imagine if that's not happening now, as time goes on, you're going to get a lot of inbound, uh, almost like you're the next radio. You, know, you are an opportunity to get music into alternative uh, environments other than just Spotify or just over the air radio or Sirius XM.
3: Yeah. We, so we are seeing managers and um, and actually a lot of Indies starting to come to us. It's adapter.com slash rights holders. If anybody wants to reach out, come to us and say, hey, I've got a catalog. I've got a label. I've got an individual song or an artist, which is fantastic. We love that. There was a great article, I think it was in Business Worldwide yesterday, talking about virtual fitness as the new influencers. And we are absolutely seeing that. So you know, some of these virtual fitness instructors have hundreds of thousands of uh, workouts being done monthly for, and if they introduce a new song and it hits, it, like it, it actually does, you start to really see traction. And this is a new distribution channel and, and a marketing channel at the end. So we are, we're excited to start to help facilitate that. And again, kind of create the connection
2: between between the rights holder or the artist and the, and the actual instructor. It, users, do you know what the demographics are?
3: For the users?
2: Yeah.
3: We, yeah, I mean, it definitely varies by app, as you would expect. We've got, we work with a company called Obey Fitness and it's younger women, 25, 34, pretty coastal, super hip, um, you know, definitely leaning more towards like pop and hip hop. We also work with a really fantastic app called 99 walks that's specifically built for moms to walk together. And that's a little bit older, a little bit more mainstream in terms of what they're looking for. So it, it really does vary by app. We work with a lot of boxing apps as well. And um, those be a little bit more male, probably going a little bit more hip hop, a little bit more intense than that. So that's part of our curator's job as well is just really understanding you know, what's the demo and, and what do they like and what works for
2: them? Yeah, it's like micro formatting. I mean, it really is, as mm-hmm. Dave mentioned, uh, Dave, it's like radio. It um, a number of stations, you know, like you would have on Sirius, where you'd have the stations yeah. that pinpoint exactly what somebody's looking for.
3: That's exactly right. And we, you know, there's a lot of talk about algorithms versus humans around curation. Yeah, right. And, and um we really believe that our team of curators is our secret sauce and, and lean really heavily on those guys because there's, and they they leverage machine learning and we've got a proprietary backend that pulls in all the data of what people are listening to and when, and that's perfect, but there's also a level of nuance to being a DJ, which is mm-hmm. essential. And, and to your point, that micro formatting that is just, um, we don't see a way to replicate it without just a really experienced and knowledgeable curator. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Because the big key is, and I had a conversation with uh, somebody just the other day, who uh, is a former label head, uh, background was in radio, and we were having this discussion about radio. I have a little background in radio as well. And if people who are in the radio business uh, are still drinking the Kool-Aid, thinking that they're impervious to anything bad ever happening radio will last forever and I think the influence of radio on the especially in the beginning side and even in the middle life of a song is so inconsequential nowadays because radio is really reactive to things that have been out there for weeks or months right it'll take months for a label to get a song into rotation on name the format and the radio station so when you guys come in I think you're like eventually I can see your, a company like yours becoming as influential as like TikTok or, or Reels, for example, on Instagram is that you are, and it's again on a really micro level, is you're providing music to all these individual smaller companies that are then spreading it out, you know, it's like a spider web and it goes further and further and further And then it's reaching people, again, micro level, but that mic, I hear it, I'll tell my friend maybe, or I'll share it over a text with my brother, and then he'll share it, you know, and then we're all listening. But you multiply that by millions and millions of people, and these tiny little micro licenses become consequential to, especially if you're talking about indie artists or or a lot of the middle class artists, not necessarily Ariana Grande, but all the, you know, this whole ecosystem of artists, and that's where I think um, you guys could really go and, and really make make a splash in terms of, of of influence in the music marketplace.
3: I mean, that's the goal for sure. You know, we see ourselves as as the platform. Our platform is an aggregator and a distributor, right? So we want to pull in all of the incredible new content that's out and old content that's out there, make sense of it for our for our customers, then push it back out to them in a way that make sense for their end user. And then for the fitness apps, there's another layer, which is the, what they call the modality. So what are you, what physically are you doing? Cause what programming is different if you're doing, like I said, boxing versus running, right? So there's all this sort of, I like to think of it as making sense of the music for each of those individuals. And so it makes it that much more impactful. So, so that's our, that's our job is to get to get the most content in, make sense of it for our customers, distribute it as broadly as possible and then get all the payments back as quickly as possible to the rights holders.
0: Mm-hmm. So it,
3: there's, a, there's definitely um, that that sort of grand vision to, to having that influence over the over the long term and we've seen a massive uptick in, in number of streams that we're processing every month as well up to about a hundred million or so, and pretty excited about some of the big deals that we're signing this year and to see that grow exponentially as well.
2: Mm-hmm. And you could take it too as, uh, I was just thinking that a, it would be a different playlist maybe for somebody shopping for food at a ShopRite versus someone shopping at Target. And Absolutely. shopping for clothes and so on. And of course, in the old days there was, no one ever thought of that, they just put it up. At yeah. uh, soothing, relaxing, you know, music, extremely micro. Yeah, Dave said, but um, with digital, that's where we are today.
3: And that's the beauty of it is we know so much about you know that we're yeah. we do not get any personally identifiable information back from the end user. That all we, we know more again context. So what time is it? What are they what workout are they doing? Where, you know, potentially where are they? And you know, that's that's enough to really create an interesting picture that would be appropriate for you to listen to at that time.
2: Yeah, well that's how radio started to get away from one format.
3: Mm
1: They
2: started to have drive times and then the noon hour and early afternoon and so on and so forth, late evening, and they created the clock and then the clock got
0: more, and more, more, more. Micro. So with the licenses, you are collecting, or, or you're collecting on behalf of rights holders, so d- does that also include the, uh, the performance rights organizations, or are you telling your clients they have to go directly to ASCAP BMI, or you're collecting all royalties, any royalty that needs to be let- collected, you guys will take care of that, depending upon the usage, but that's what you do. That's
3: right. That's exactly right. Yeah, so we take care of all of it. There are times where our customers come to us and they have already done their deals with the PROs and that's great and we'll just pass that through and manage it for them. Um, that's typically not the case, to be honest. So, so yes, we have those deals done with all of the performing rights organizations, working with, directly with the publishers and then with the label labels as well. And then on the statutory side with the sound exchange also, so. Okay.
1: Complicated okay. really.
0: No, it's good. And one, one company I, I believe uh, Esteban mentioned was Muzak, M-U-Z-A-K, which historically was a company, we used to call it elevator music. They would program music for, for elevators and noise. It was this awful, easygoing music. And so um, I remember in the 90s, so there was Muzak, there was a company called DMX, and they might have merged at one point, but they provided in-store music for whether it's the Gap or Old Navy, that kind of store, and I believe they would pay the licenses on behalf of the uh, of of those retailers. So you're yeah. sort of doing that in a similar similar way, but a little bit more personalized according to the brand. Am I sort of correct in stating that?
3: That's true. Yeah, we don't we don't focus on physical spaces at all. So it's really so it's it's sort of like that, but for digital use cases, which is way more complicated, honestly, mm-hmm. because as you know, licenses are different whether it's Depending on you know, if there's audiovisual, if you're, if it's on demand, if it's not interactive, etc. So, so yes, I, we we hesitate to describe ourselves akin to them, but um, at the end of the day, it is a B two B music platform primarily focused on digital, and we do all of the rights for, our, and we pay out all of the all of the rights holders for every use case. I think so. Musac turned into Mood Media,
1: uh-huh.
3: in the last ten years. Ago and I uh, they, you know as unfortunately as most background music providers had a bad year last year and um I think they declared bankruptcy and I think they got picked up by a private equity firm So
0: okay we'll yeah I had somebody I used to work with who was at mood media and uh lost her job in in that so I was unsure I knew they'd gone bankrupt I wasn't sure if they were still operating at all or if they were completely defunct so okay
3: mm-hmm. I so I mean they're you know, it things are coming back. There's def, there will be a need for re, for for retail for background music again. I think it's just I for us like just as from a business model perspective, that's never been what we're interested in. Like if strictly from the business model, it's very very low margin business, and you way know, to do it is at massive scale. So if you want, if if you have every store and every mall, fantastic. Otherwise. Mm-hmm. It just, you know, it's a tough model and, it, and while there's definitely, it, it could be considered ripe for change because if you talk to the customers, generally they're kind of grouchy about the service. Mm-hmm. We just felt, for us, it was more compelling to focus on innovation in the digital space, at least initially.
2: Mm-hmm. So you mentioned gaming earlier. I yeah were- Where are you, how are you gonna fit into that? Are you talking about the actual soundtracks or are you talking about, well, what are you talking about? (laughs) The easiest way to
3: So it's, you know, gaming is such a crazy big category. It covers so many different things. So we do work with some mobile games now on mobile, no consoles. And the simplest example is like a casino game. So if you're playing poker on your phone, or Jack, uh, instead of just having some generic casino music in the background, you can pick like a number of radio stations. I want to hear Rat Pack right now while I'm playing this casino game, that kind of thing. So that's a very simple um, You know, We are currently talking to a number of different games that would benefit more from popular music. Because as you know, it's traditionally been just production or stock music in the background, but for things like you're trying to do a dance game those are tick tock has made those very popular right now you need real music that people recognize so that's there's an opportunity there so it it i would say that it's a broad spectrum we're still figuring out how to make the cost models work because music's expensive as it should be it is incredible content and that like I think a lot of people that come to license music don't necessarily have a sense for the cost of it, and so if you're selling, you know, a game for ninety-nine cents in the app store, it might not make sense to have popular music. So, so that's part of our process as well as helping people understand: look, maybe this isn't the best option for you
2: and your business model,
3: and that's okay. There are other options for
2: you. Mm-hmm. We have a friend that say um, actually does original scores for games. Oh, nice. Yeah. It's such tedious work and the game is so long oh. that one person can't sc- score for the entire game because right. it would take a year or two, whatever. Uh, so many of the games already have sound text. That's what was confusing me. Yeah. A bit. But uh, the examples that you gave, such as the casino and so on, I could see whether it could be just... Um, not a, a, a you know an environmental type music, not necessarily background, but
3: mm-hmm.
1: something
2: that they would want to hear during that game.
3: Right? Yeah, and it's it, it, like to your point, if you're doing if it's in like uh, and forgive me, I'm not a gamer. An adventure, there's a the category that where you will literally play for thirty hours, forty hours. Mm. <laughs> That's that doesn't make sense, obviously, for popular music, but right. like, there are particular scenarios. We're also on adapter getting some really interesting inbound from apps, things that we didn't expect, for example, dating apps. Mm-hmm. So it, the hypothesis being music is a really telling way to get your personality out there if you're trying to meet someone who's like-minded. So incorporating music into your profile or as part of your you know, your connection point from another person. Love it, super interested to see how it goes. Mm -hmm. Um, Another category is social listening. So at Turntable FM is writing from the dead example and just different ways to come to an audio environment and listen and engage and talk to each other about it. And messaging too. So if you think of, I don't know if you've ever used Giphy, but it's a way to say send a, or a GIF to express in mm. time. Think about doing the same with an audio clip. Like instead of just saying, hey, how's your morning going? You can say 10 seconds of lovely day or, or something.
2: That is interesting, you know, because you always think about, well, if you're meeting someone new what kind of music do you like well I, you know I, i'm just not into that and it's it's not gonna work uh so i could see more uses for that certainly in telling you know actually pretty truthful in terms of uh getting along with someone
3: i mean personally so i'm i met my husband on match.com like 10 12 years ago so the kids they use different apps these days i don't know what they are but you know, we, that was, that was what we bonded on right away with music. And, music too. and I think, I, you know, I hate to say I, I couldn't connect with someone that didn't, doesn't have to have the same taste, but at least care about music. But I definitely think it, it makes the case. So yeah, I think a couple of the recent dating apps we've seen come in and we're, we're actually really excited to see how it plays out.
0: And we take a step back and go, go back. I teach a class about entrepreneurship. Um, in, in the music industry. And a couple of questions, things that we cover, and I'm, I'm curious where you are with this. The first thing is when you were coming up, when you and your co-founders were coming up with the idea of this company, can you talk about sort of the business plan that you guys created? Did you do it all together? Did one person do the whole thing? How did you come up with financial projections? I don't, we don't have to, you don't have to tell us what they are, but how did you come up with all your different, different business plan and uh, parts of it and if you even did one. And then we can talk about how did you get funding for the company as well?
3: Yes, absolutely. So it is it for us, it's a really great combination of skill sets. So my two co-founders, Jeff Yasuda, the CEO, is has a finance and CPA background. Eric Lambrecht, the CTO, is a developer, actually brilliant developer and then my background in marketing so what the three of us brought to the table was the financial projections from jeff product vision and the initial prototypes from eric and then how we would bring it to market for me so it was it was definitely a combination of those three things you know my i'm fortunate that jeff is a a rare bird who likes to likes to raise money (laughs) i think most people i know are not a fan of that process but he you know he got he got our seed funding enough for us to go out and try and figure our way out into market product market fit. And I've talked a lot about that over the years. You, know, you, you make some guesses around what the market needs, you get some early feedback from customers or potential customers. I mean, we were obviously giving it away for free for at least the first year. And you have to really experiment and, and test and continue to evolve the product. So. We were lucky that we had a great investor at the early stages who gave us a really good specific methodology, which is simple when you think about it, but a lot of companies don't follow this in my experience, which is take a guess at what who the target audience is and exactly what they need and want and go after them for six or eight weeks, test the messaging, see if you can get them to use the product. If, if there's no traction, if nobody's interested, move on, try a different segment and you know just continue methodically until you find product market fit which is so frustrating that people say, well it's hard to measure but you know it when you have it, which is actually true <laughs> unfortunately um, but there there are some metrics that you can use to start to measure product market fit like your sales cycles, how quickly are you closing deals, conversion rates, Um, and then there's a a thing that happens when your product roadmap starts to coalesce into a really clear, like, okay, we know what we need to build. We know what's coming next because all of our customers need the same thing right now. So it's, it's, um, it, it's a journey. Certainly it's been a, a long journey. So we've been at it with this product for six years now, which is hard to believe, um. But I, you know, we're frankly more invigorated than ever, even though it's been a sort of a twisty, windy journey. But, you know, when you do start to really see the needs being served in the marketplace and the market pulling you saying, we need more, we need we need different, um, you know, it's, it's pretty gratifying to see the growth. So, sorry, back to your initial question. Um, you know, I think it's hard at the early stage for any one person to have all the skills it takes to really get out to market quickly. And it's helpful if you can find the right partners.
0: At what point did you realize, and it might have been at the very beginning, but at what point did you realize we need to get to the rights holders and we need to explain to them what this company is, how we can benefit them and cut some deals that are realistic deals for what we want to do. How long ago was that? And where was that in your cycle of of development as a company?
3: So we started on the non-interactive side. So we were able to use section 114 of the copyright law and take advantage of the statutory licenses. So that enabled us to get popular music out, test it, get some traction with real customers and without having to do those direct deals. So once we, frankly, had enough money in the bank <laughs> to go talk to the rights holders. That's when, And that was always our objective is like, okay, we've got to prove out the business model, show that there's a real need here. Once we have some real customers, then we can go, you know, talk directly to the rights
0: holders. Section 114, you were talking about the compulsory. Is that the compulsory or it's yeah. statutory or that's kind of the same thing?
3: Yeah. Yeah. So so, I, so being able to leverage those blanket licenses and it, which are really Use cases, and then and then from there being able to service the interactive side of things.
0: Okay, and for people um, listening, when they're we're talking about uh, interactive versus non-interactive. Non-interactive is the user does not have any choice necessarily about what they're listening to. Interactive means I can choose the song, I can pause it, fast forward, listen again, listen again, listen again, choose the next song, skip all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. I
3: think- that's, that's exactly right. So, so one good way to think about non-interactive is that the user can't reasonably guess what the next song is going to be. There's, a, there's an, a randomization to it. Mm-hmm. And just the way the laws are written, interactive and non-interactive are extremely different use cases in terms of cost and the types of deals you have to do. So, and that's, that's, again, part of the education. That's something that we talk to our customers about they, they come in think they may definitely 100% have to have interactive. And then we work through business model implications with them. And they're like, actually, maybe I can start out. And, and that's something that I personally am, am really enjoying is starting to piece together a journey or a map for companies as they're trying, because we've got, been through it ourselves. Like, okay, you're a business, you want to leverage music. Here are your options at various stages of funding, And at various stages of your product evolution. And it's it's very opaque. I think it's just, it's extremely murky for a lot of folks, you know, And, and our objective is to be experts, the extent that we can, deeply, deeply knowledgeable around all of the different use cases, all of the different costs, and be able to convey that in a transparent way so that businesses can make a good decision.
0: And it's interesting because you really need to know in your business, the landscape of rights holders. If you're a a newbie coming right into music, besides learning how to license this stuff, which is pretty complicated, you know, you can teach it and teach it, but until you're actually doing it, it still takes a while to sink in and go, oh, now I get it. But you're also talking about so many different rights holders. I know you mentioned in the beginning, you guys were working with Warner, and they were sort of, um, and they seem to be, because we know Paul Sinclair, who's a, uh, now the GM, but he was in marketing at Atlantic, and he's one of the people there who spearheads a lot of these and takes a lot of these meetings and talks with startups and companies like you, and that kind of um, gives some recommendations. So I don't know if you ever dealt with Paul or not.
3: We don't deal directly with him. We're working with one of Sandra and her team on the like the digital innovation side. Um, but I know the name for sure. Yeah. Okay. You know yeah. Okay. Great. Let us help. Let us introduce you to the right folks if that's where you're at and if that makes sense for your business. We're happy to to pass that. You know, to really make that connection. That's what we're all about. Is again, it's not a zero sum game. We want everybody to win. You know, so. Small business, what works for you, rights holders, how can we help you as well? So we're kind of trying to be Switzerland and to some extent.
0: Exactly. And then, then I guess where I was going, what it is finding all the rights holders because you have the big three major label groups. If, if we're just talking about master recording and we're not even talking about publishing yet, which is many, many, many publishers, but then you need to talk to, which we were talking to earlier. I mentioned Merlin and some people listening probably don't know what Merlin is. And then there's also all these different distributors in the indie market is more than 25, 30% mm-hmm. of the music that is released that's out there. And that's a, actually a piece of the pie that's growing even more. And you have also then the consumer is listening because they have access to anything. They're listening to more types of music, which makes it even harder for any one type of company to necessarily send them the right track. So it's really, I think your musicolo- your ethnomusicologists who remind me of what Pandora was at the beginning when they were creating the, the genome experiment. Yeah. And they were trying to figure out so they could recommend music to people based upon mood versus I want Bob Seeger and I will only listen to Bob Seeger. It's, well, there's other stuff that we can also recommend that they should right. hopefully like. So there's a lot into this. It's really interesting.
3: I mean, at the end of the day, the music industry still is a relationship industry. And so that ha- is important. So we're on the technology side, servicing startups at scale, businesses at scale, but in, on the rights holder and the negotiation side, it's the relationships. And so that's where our head of licensing and some of the consultants that we're working with have, um, they are also crucial to the business. Like it wouldn't happen without those relationships. So it's, it's kind of an interesting balance between the two. How can we... sure we're talking to the right people and facilitate these conversations turn that around and then distribute it at scale to technology companies so that it's self-service for them
0: yeah i was going to say you must have you must have consultants who you were working with who really understand and have those relationships who can help you guys out and and all that Mm
3: -hmm. we're very fortunate to have some of the folks who wrote the copyright law for example (laughs) helping us make sense of all of it and you know it's there some of the the Interactive use cases that we're dealing with are so niche. There's probably a handful of people in the country who understand them. And so we have to make sure that we are. In- At the end of the day, we fully indemnify all of our customers, meaning if they, if, say, if a right holder takes issue with something they've done, they come to us. Our customer never deals with them. So we are um, obviously extremely motivated to make sure that everything we're doing is above board and, and, you know, doing the right thing for everyone.
2: Yeah. I know of course, uh, speaking of fitness too, Peloton got in trouble this year. Mm-hmm. They weren't paying rights.
3: That's right. And the crazy thing is they've invested so much money and time into making sure they do the right thing. So they bought a company, built a platform, have a whole music department, like frankly we're really trying hard to do the right thing but on the publishing side it is very challenging and so that i think was sort of an eye-opener for some of our customers and prospects honestly that wow if someone as well capitalized as peloton is still having issues maybe we need to outsource this and get some help with it
0: yeah one more thing about funding and we, 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 we touched upon it, but um, I listened to a podcast just uh, the other day and with um, Milana Robkin, who is the, uh, one of the co-founders of a company called STEM, which is a distribution music distribution company. And she mentioned how, unfortunately, in the startup world, somebody at the company is always fundraising. You're constantly, while you're privately owned or, or like you know in the startup phase, you're always fundraising. Is that the case with you guys? That you always have somebody and you just, and you said, you mentioned your, I think it's your CTO enjoys that part. So is that something consistently happening with the company?
3: It's, it's my CEO. Um, it's true. It is true. Even when you're not raising around, you are all actually always fundraising. So it's a combination of making sure that your existing investors understand what's happening with the company and merchandising, all the amazing things you're doing back to them. But it's also relationship building right and continuing to pay it forward and take meetings and get to know people even when you don't have an immediate need and that's another thing that my co-founder is great at is he's just he's he has inspired me to put more time and energy into maintaining the network and and just even now when it's so much harder it's like yes I'll do another zoom coffee because I want to keep that connection and figure out what how can I help you you know not with any expectation of anything in return I, it just all comes back to the people right and so yes you are always fundraising and merchandising your growth and what's new and product innovation and it's you're sort of it's the same as like you're always selling it's kind of the same thing right you're just always selling. So, you know i think um as much as we 90 percent of our our time and energy and interest is the company and the team and, and building, but we, we just kind of have to always have that, you know, some level of awareness and energy also going into the...
0: We want to thank Lauren Huffpath, uh, the German, straight from uh, the Chicago land of Germany, along with her husband. We want to thank you, Lauren, for appearing nice. on Music Biz 101 and more. And, and in exchange for appearing, you do receive a lifetime supply of bratwurst. Yes, congratulations to you. Is Bratwurst German? I don't even know if that's German, so it is. Okay, very good. You get all the German food you want forever because you've been on this show. I I
2: was in Cologne two years ago and the food was excellent. So
0: good,
3: I know. German food gets a bad rap. It's actually really fantastic. Yeah,
2: no, this was great. God, I had pig's knuckles. I've never had that before. They were delicious unbelievable that I would even try it. And then I was almost asking for second helpings. That would have been 16, four, eight pigs. I don't know how many fingers they have. <laughs> Carry on, Dave. Uh,
0: no, that, that is fine. And There are pigs all over the world now who are just hobbling around without their knuckles because of Dr. Esteban Racconi. But Lauren, thank you so much for appearing on our show. At the end of every show, do you know what we say, Lauren? What do we say? I want you to quietly say adios. Adios. And we say to say I could
1: be whatever you need and then some affair to see all your worst nightmare that's me.